in some ways, that's why some of the contemporary sources for her gender isn't so important, because those places has had queenship. They didn't consider Mary's gender to be abnormal, you know, or her ruling as a woman to be abnormal. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome to this episode of Tudor's Dynasty series on Mary I, England's first crowned queen regnant. I am your host for this, Johanna Strong, PhD at the University of Winchester about Mary's legacy. And this week, I'm joined on the podcast by Valerie Schutte and Jessica S. Hauer. Valerie holds a PhD from the University of Akron and is the author or editor of a number of journal articles, book chapters, or books on Mary I, Unexpected Heirs, and Queens in Shakespeare. Jess holds a PhD from Georgetown University and is an associate professor of history at Southwestern University, Texas. Her research focuses on the British Empire, the Atlantic world, comparative colonialism, and women and gender. Valerie and Jess have recently published two volumes on Mary I, entitled Mary I in Writing, Letters, Literature, and Representation, and Writing Mary I, History, Historiography, and Fiction. So they're joining me today to talk about these latest publications. So let's get started. Thank you both for joining me. It's wonderful to have you on. Thanks for having us. So I guess we'll get right in. You can answer in whichever order you would like. But what got you interested in Mary the First originally? I can tell you she was not my main interest when I was doing my PhD. So I kind of got backdoored into working on Mary because I had wanted to write my PhD on Anne Boleyn. And my PhD advisor informed me wrongly that writing on these six wives of Henry VIII was not an academic subject that was for popular audiences only. So after lots and lots and lots of back and forth, I ended up on Mary I because she was a queen regnant. So he found that more acceptable as a topic. And uh, I started working on her books um, kind of for the same reason. That was something my advisor was interested in. And we kind of formulated a topic that worked for both of us. And I've been working on Mary ever since. It's a nice, happy accident, I guess. We have- It is, it is. Turned out much better than I ever imagined when I started the project, that's for sure. It's a a nice change of pace, I think, from the six wives. I I am happy that I have gotten away from Anne Boleyn. So I think in some ways that was uh, very fortuitous for me also. Yes, and how about you, Jess? How did you get interested in Mary? I had a really different trajectory um, uh, from Valerie's, which was part of the reason that I kind of gave her the the cue to speak first on this one. And actually, I think this is why our collaboration works so well, because we really do come from different directions. 
I don't think it's a, a surprise to anyone who knows Valerie's work, right? She, she is at the front of the pack when it comes to scholarship on Mary. For me, this, the, these two edited volumes really gave me the first opportunity to do real sustained study on Mary. But it was a desire that I had based on um, the PhD dissertation and what followed out of that, um, my monograph. So my monograph, which came out in at the very end, um, right around Christmas in 2020, is called Tudor Empire. And essentially what it does is it traces the development of both the Tudor nation and sense of identity, excuse me, a British nation and sense of, sense of identity at the same time as it traces the development of the British Empire, arguing that these two things are part and parcel of one another and that they take place over the entirety of the Tudor century. In other words, the project goes from 1485 all the way until 1603. And so while I tried really hard to make sure that I wasn't falling into the old chronologies, which don't really make sense when you're paying attention to empire, when you're paying attention to overseas development. So it doesn't go by, you know, one chapter on Henry VII, one chapter on Henry VIII, one chapter on Edward, Mary, Elizabeth, rather it makes different breaks. It's still over the course of, you know, only the length of a monograph trying to cover 125 years and a bunch of different monarchs. So Mary, I wouldn't say that she got short shrift there, but she did. She was only a portion, albeit the centerpiece of a chapter. And I, and I realized in studying her that the narrative that I was creating or rather the narrative that I was finding and creating based on the sources that I saw brought her to the fore and demonstrated a really, really different Mary than the one that's come down to us historiographically and reinforced the version that Valerie has put forth in her research. And so she and I had the chance, Valerie and I had the chance to meet for the first time at a Kings and Queens conference in Winchester way back when. And I said, I want to do more things on Mary. And she said, well, we can do that. <laughs> and the rest is history. As you say, a great kind of shout out for the work of the Royal Studies Network, who I guess were born out of and now support the Kings and Queens Conference of just this amazing work on Royal Studies more generally, but especially on queenship coming together and having that platform to be able to talk about it and research it. That brings us really nicely into, and in fact, your previous research on Mary has been part of this broader study. And we both said Valerie is a leader of the field. Um, what have you previously worked on with Mary? What research have you undertaken in a post-PhD? Um, so my dissertation was on Mary, and that turned into my first book, uh, Mary in the Art of Book Dedications. Um, my second monograph is on Mary and Elizabeth, but when they were princesses. So I find that a lot of the work I was doing for Mary, there are moments where she's really focused on, and they tend to be during her reign as queen or the time of her father's divorce. And there was kind of a lack of attention to other times whenever she was a princess, but she was still receiving books, owning books and having an education. And the same in some ways could be said for Elizabeth. So there's lots of hype on Elizabeth until she's three. And then she kind of disappears until the Seymour affair, which crops up and it's really ugly for her. And then it goes away again until Edward. I wrote my second book to kind of highlight how the sisters were so similar and books that they read and received in their educations, and in many ways to push back on the idea of Elizabeth being so superior. So I find that Mary was the one who, I mean, she had the education first because she was older, but she had a similar education. She had the princely education, and Elizabeth benefited from Mary receiving those things first. So I... I get tired often and I complain to Jess and we complain together about all of the comparison of let's compare Mary to Elizabeth 
and then use it to say, Elizabeth is better or Elizabeth improved upon these things. But sometimes a comparison can yield something that's not so negative where we don't have to say bad things about one to say good things about the other. And that's what I tried to do in my second book. Um, so in I've done that. I've done boatloads of book chapters and journal essays and articles and things too on Mary. They all have to do with books. I'm a book historian by trade. That's what I'm comfortable in. That's what I like. So uh, it's all about Mary and books and her library and yeah, lots of that kind of stuff. See, all the good stuff. As historians, we all love books. We all love old books. You've got the best of all of the worlds there. (laughs) And I think that that research that you've both done in different spheres of the field, but both having touched on kind of briefly or really focused on Mary led, as you said, to this great collaboration in these edited collections. And for anyone listening to this one, if you haven't already, go back and listen to our episode. We talked to Eilish Gregory about her chapter a little bit more on posthumous representations of Mary. And that will tie really nicely into this conversation then of how did those edited collections come about? Um, what, what was the aim when you were putting that to a publisher to say, we'd like to do this? Why don't we start with just this time? Sure. So part of what's exciting about this was we didn't envision two volumes. We didn't come close to envisioning two volumes. We envisioned one volume. And the initial call from for proposals really started from a, a point of let's take words seriously. Let's take text seriously. Let's realize that we need to be paying attention to not only quote unquote, what is happening in the past and how it's understood, but also the means by which it's, it's constructed. And so we said, let's, let's interrogate words and let's move across and transcend genres in such a way that we can pay attention to the many different ways in which um, Mary was represented uh, and the many different ways in which she represented herself. So it was a, it was a broad call to be sure about kind of mining diverse sources paying attention to the process of writing and paying attention in broad terms to what text can allow us to see. Um, The response was overwhelming. We received far more abstracts than we ever expected. And the vast majority of them were of of really, really excellent quality. And that's when we realized, okay, we're tapping into something here. We're tapping into something really, really essential that proves um, that we need to be paying more attention to Mary and we need to be doing it in this way and we need to be doing it right now. And so we had um, 20 wonderful essays that, that we desperately wanted to um to shepherd to publication and so that's kind of what gave us the 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 um opportunity to think of this in terms of two volumes and then from there as we received the abstracts we started to realize that we not only had a bunch of people who wanted to work on mary but also a bunch of different themes that were coming to the fore and were um emerging kind of organically based on this particular moment in scholarship and so one of the things that's kind of unique or different about what we did is the organization uh, of the volumes um and so not only do we have two volumes and um i don't want to um i want valerie to have the opportunity to talk on this too um but one of the things that i loved most was the 
way in which these naturally fit into pairings or in some cases um, groups of three essays. And so while they were kind of easy to split in between um, uh, between kind of contemporary representations, which is what we get more of in the first volume and um, foreign as well as um, uh, posthumous representations in the second volume, even within that, they these are essays that speak to one another in a really interesting way. And I think that's one of the kind of uniquenesses of what we're doing here. The last thing that I'll add, and hopefully we'll delve into this even more, is kind of the reference I made a minute ago to, to themes. Um, certainly writing was a big one, but we also appreciated, and I think this speaks to where Valerie found herself with the second monograph that she wrote, there's an opportunity here, or there has been an opportunity here to really stand on the shoulders of the many scholars who have written on Mary and done amazing work on her thus far. And that gave us a luxury to maybe dispatch with the whole myth busting, needing to restore Mary to prominence, needing to make the case for her significance and dig a little bit deeper and ask some of the same questions and use some of the methodologies and some of the same source bases that have been applied to Elizabeth and now apply them to Mary without this constant fear of needing to say, but these are valid or important because they set precedent for Elizabeth, right? We were able to kind of dispatch for that. And um, uh, one of the phrases we came up with in the uh, in the drafting of our introductions with the, the was that there was no need to throw the methodological baby out with the Elizabethan bathwater, right? That just because we were shifting uh, uh, focus away from this constant comparison and very gendered comparison between Mary and Elizabeth didn't mean that we couldn't still borrow from what Elizabethan studies has accomplished because it's impressive. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point is I think for so long it's been we need to kind of rehabilitate Mary to a point where we no longer need to start every essay with, we understand that this is the view, but, and now it can just kind of go into that second half of just here it is. We don't have to justify it beyond the normal kind of historical justification, but that this is valid research by itself, the end. And how about you, Valerie? What did you see coming into this? Um, what were your hopes and dreams? So I um, was doing the research for my second book when I kind of, I was reading um, the Elizabethan writing essay collection by uh, Montini and Plessia. And I was reviewing it and I was using it in my own work. And that's when I was kind of reading and going, well, all of these same ideas and topics for every essay in this book could be applied to Mary without having to mention Elizabeth at all. And not in a negative way, but it just seemed like there has been so much useful work on Elizabeth and new even in the last 20 years of ways of taking her own writing or written sources about her. And from all of the work I had done on Mary, I thought, well, the same exact sources exist, just not as many of them. You know, a five-year reign compared to a 45-year reign, but you could ask the same exact methodological questions of Mary, of authors, of translators, um, of playwrights in her own time and figure out more about Mary. So my goal was to take some of the really excellent work that's been applied to Elizabeth and apply it to Mary without it being comparative and in, in a way to really highlight um, kind of what Alexander Sampson talked about in his culture essay in the Birth of a Queen book that I edited for Mary's uh, 500th birthday. Um, a way to highlight the politics and culture of her reign that sometimes people ignore happened or blame on other people and don't give Mary any agency over. And I really wanted to take those ideas 
and find them and find a group of scholars who could find them and say, but these things do matter too. And there's way more we can do with Mary, not just say, eh, she wasn't as bad as we thought and kind of leave it at that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I think that's such a a big part, I think especially we were talking before we hit record of the change of a monarch changes, everything all of a sudden is in retrospect. And I think that's one of the big things when we look at Mary is in retrospect, we can easily put it in perspective. Um, whereas that's, it's easy for us to go, well, this is how she's remembered. And so that's that. And then need kind of backtrack to justify. And I think that's the exciting thing, as you both said about this work, is that it brings it forward and it takes all of the research that others have put into the field already and have gone, but how about this? And have slightly changed those questions. And I think to follow up on what you were saying, Jess, about themes, kind of what are the big themes that we're seeing come out about Mary either in the volume or more generally. Um, we've talked a bit about sources and text and books and that comparative, non-comparative element. But yeah, thoughts on that? I think there are a bunch. And, and I, I think that they're not in many ways unique to Mary or Elizabeth. And right, this is part of what's fun about the historiography. Um, a lot of the really good and exciting questions that have been asked about Elizabeth that we're now being able to, or that we are now able to ask about Mary are, are fundamentally reorienting the fields in broader senses as well, right? Um, one of the big things that comes forward here is matters of representation and taking representation seriously, even if it is not rooted in or bears even any resemblance to reality. Um, this idea of uh, fashioning or self-fashioning, right? To look back to, to Greenblatt and some of the things that he and some of the new historicists did. Um, paying attention to things like myth and, and language and imagery. Um, paying attention to physical objects and patronage and to the source material that is related to this, things like wardrobe accounts and other um, other account books that maybe haven't been taken this seriously in the past. Um, similarly, I think that if we look at the entirety of early modern studies, let alone the 16th century in the context of the British Isles, there is a, there's a desire to look more broadly geographically, um, to look beyond England, to be sure, to not simply use uh, Britain as a, um, uh, as, a, uh, as a shorthand for England, but actually to take seriously the idea of a British Isles perspective, to take seriously the idea of a continental perspective and what it means to look at Mary's reign through continental eyes. Also moving in other directions, uh, Atlantic directions, um, to, to be more particular here. And then I, I think the last two that really come to the fore, or two more that really come to the fore, is um, elevating and valuing things like fiction um, and other non-traditional sources more broadly, um, not being hemmed in by 
the material that's been used over and over and over again. And if we are going to use that material that's been used over and over again, that focuses, for example, on the kind of high politics Whig perspective, right? Things like the letters and papers of Henry VIII. If we are going to revisit those, how do we read them against the grain? How do we look at them in different ways? And again, I don't think any of this is unique to Mary's reign. And so it's interesting to see the ways in which things like postmodernism, things like um, some of the you know linguistic turns, things like uh, new historicism, things like um, an emphasis on material culture can then shift and, um, or at the very least, further complicate our renderings of Mary. You've hit on some really kind of key points there in this. We talk about historiography, which kind of for anyone listening going, what is this? Is basically how how we write history, how how history becomes the way we see it today and how it changes. And I think this key point that you brought is we are always changing and the world around us is affecting us every day. And this this growth in the field of talking about representation, of talking about here are the things we don't talk about but should, I think is is such a product of the 2010s and early, early 2020. Um, seeing the world change and go, hang on, women in power don't have to be bad. Kind of these different views that we have, we've got this. Uh, There's so many different perspectives to bring, and it might be the same sources, but you read them differently. And I think that's that's what certainly has made your books unique and exciting, Valerie, is this idea that Elizabeth I is valuable as a tool for understanding Mary, less so kind of the, well, let's take Elizabeth and to understand Elizabeth, let's kind of go back a bit. Um, And I think that one of the massive things, obviously, that is changing in the 1550s is religion, is having the first crowned queen regnant on the throne. And I know there will be many after us on the internet if we do not claim Matilda and Jane and the other women who set that in place for Mary. And so wondering, Valerie, if you could talk a little bit more about these themes of gender and religion and how we see those kind of build and develop in these essays. Well, I would happily leave that for Jess, to be honest. Those are my two least favorite themes to discuss. I will tell you... uh, so in my own essay, they don't come up. So I can answer that very quickly for you. They're not important. So, I mean, that tells you, I think, for as important as we sometimes place the emphasis on Mary's gender and religion, people in her own time didn't. So I can pretty easily answer that, well, it was a non-issue, or it was an incredibly minor issue when you want to look back and say, but she was a woman, and didn't John Knox fight that? No, no, her own people didn't fight it. Her, I mean, you have to think that when she became queen, the top seven claimants were women. You know, there was no male contender. It wasn't about gender. It wasn't, it, there was no king to be had. So it, her accession wasn't to do with her gender. It was to do with her heritage, her dynasty, her parentage, her legitimacy, um, whether or not, you know, her parents' marriage was legitimate. And I think some of those gendered lessons come out in the other essays in that gender simply isn't as important as we thought it. I didn't, I mean, for my own work, I didn't think so, but from a lot of the other works, it seems like that confirmed what I had been looking at is that gender simply wasn't as important as we sometimes project it back to be. 
Religion was different uh, for my own essay. There wasn't a lot of religion. And when it was, it was talked about politically, how Henry VIII talked about religion post, you know, the, uh, the six articles. So it was religion will be handled properly and legally, not willfully and however we feel. So, I mean, Mary's first proclamation only 14 days after she was queen was, don't worry about religion. We'll settle it legally, just like my father did. You know, it's not I'm queen and we're Catholic now and and deal with it. It was, you know, we will have to come to some type of settlement and we will talk about this and what is best for the nation. And there was the it was a very political idea, not simply I'm queen. So we're Catholic again. And that comes through in the other essays, too, especially like someone's like um, Aidan Norris when he talks about the biblical analogies and that they could be used for multiple purposes. They weren't simply Protestant analogies or Catholic analogies. It was an idea of a of an English religion more as a whole. You know, you see kind of the very itsy bitsy beginnings of a Church of England, even though Mary wouldn't have been happy. But it was very much, a, you know, a religion that was appropriate to England in that moment, not simply the Pope is back. And I think that that comes through. It's much more nuanced than often just gets projected on Mary being an important you know, first female regnant and Catholic. I mean, there's much more nuance that comes through in both of those. If you want to jump in, Jess, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'll just add, I, I, that's exactly the point, right? Valerie is making a really, really crucial commentary here that comes out of the book in perhaps unexpected ways, right? This is not to suggest that we don't need to talk about gender or we don't need to talk about religion when it comes to Mary. We absolutely do. But there's been a, maybe, maybe a loss of an appreciation that these things, these matters look differently if we're studying Mary in her contemporary moment and if we're studying her from a posthumous perspective. And I think this is some of the benefit of two volumes that do both of these things and that also write from uh, broadly English or British sources, but also write from continental European sources. It breaks down a lot of the assumptions that we have that um, Mary's womanhood was all that mattered or that Mary's Catholicism was all that mattered. And that's a really, really powerful lesson to learn. Um, it also allows us to kind of break down these, these simplistic assumptions that exactly as, as Valerie says, that just because Mary was Catholic, that comes uh, together with a whole host of things that we don't then associate with the British state or in the context of my chapter, British empire going forward. I think part of the reason that Mary doesn't get her due in so many bigger fields, um, for example, the studies of, uh, of religion, um, or even, but also studies of the Atlantic world or studies of the British Empire is in part the um, length of her reign, right? This is short, and so it's often seen as a blip, right? This was this momentary five-year period in which things backtracked or, um, uh, or, or the forward progress of, uh, of, of, of Britain was halted in some you know, kind of problematic way. And instead, nuances those makes them more complicated and breaks down these assumptions that we have like the idea of the British Empire being Protestant or the idea of the British state and the only way in which it could have existed or British national identity as being fundamental, fundamentally Protestant. 
Now those two, two things do end up being the case later on. And that's an important evolution to chart. And it's something that your essay, Joe, brings to the fore a little bit. It's something that um, Eilish's essay definitely brings to the fore. And it's something that even Carolyn Colbert's um, essay brings to the fore as she studies kind of those immediate reactions to, um, to Mary's death. And then, and, and, and those renderings of those, you know, narratives of that death um, in text. And it's also then something that we get out of the pieces that focus on fiction and also just focus on more modern representations of the queen. We see the way in which those are steeped much more readily in the moments in which they were produced, whether that's later in the 16th century, all the way up to um, the 21st century, as opposed to being rooted in some sort of a, um, a Marian reality. One other thing to kind of build off of that, that I think the essays highlight well too, that we haven't talked about, but it works with gender, is we have so many essays that view her from a Spanish or an international perspective. We we have certainly have lots of Spanish. And I think there's a moment right now, too, in identifying um, Mary and placing her in an international context. So she wasn't just Queen of England. She was Queen of Spain. She was, you know, Duchess of Brabant and all of these other places and Countess of, you know, I mean, her list of titles includes, you know, 10 other places, Jerusalem and Tyrol and Naples. And I think it's important that even though she never went to those places, she was queen or duchess or countess or ruler of those places. And in some ways, that's why some of the contemporary sources for her gender isn't so important, because those places has had queenship. You know, like Spain had had ruling female queens before her and Philip's sister was you know, ruling um, the low countries. I mean, this was not, you know, they didn't consider Mary's gender to be abnormal, you know, or her ruling as a woman to be abnormal. And I think that's something too, that the essays really highlight. And I think that is one of the ways that research on Mary is going to go forward, is putting her in a more international perspective and identifying what she meant as queen to the rest of Europe. Yeah, completely. I think the, the thing that sticks in my mind from that is kind of my, my dad jokingly says, Britain, just because you're an island doesn't mean you have to act like one <laughs> to go like, look, look at the rest of what Europe is doing. Look at what kind of the rest of the world, how does this fit into that? And I think that is one of the beautiful things that these collections do is they do look to Mary's identity beyond England where she's stepping into all of these different precedents that have already been set for her. And she becomes kind of the, the follower of that tradition as opposed to the maker of one. It also changes her role, right? Um, Michaela Baca's essay is the is the second one in, in the entire volume, and um, she kind of breaks down this um, this understanding that we have of Mary and this desire to examine her as either a male king or a female queen. And how does she fit one of those? How does she do not fit the other? But instead, reframes that conversation in terms of the fact that Mary was both a queen queen regnant and queen consort. And then you look back to Teresa Ehrenfeit's contribution, talking about kind of the relationship between Mary and her. Pre- 
predecessors um, and her familial ties, most obviously Catherine of Aragon, a queen consort. And then you look ahead to someone like Darcy Kern's piece. Once we're taking that continental perspective, we're not just evaluating a place on the European continent and seeing how Mary's understood there. We're now examining her as a queen consort as opposed to a queen regnant. Here again is another opportunity in which we benefit from the fact that there's already been a great deal of scholarship on Mary as a queen regnant. That meant that these two volumes got to do that work to be sure and add to it, but it also got to do different sorts of work, like examining her as a queen consort. And so when Darcy's chapter shows us something like the fact that Mary's reputation abroad was often tied to how her subjects there perceived of Philip, as opposed to anything that she was doing in and of herself, that's really significant. Yeah, yeah, and she she fits this kind of strange world, as you say, she's a queen regnant and a queen consort. I think that's something that I briefly have looked at in the PhD is this moment when she's pregnant, uh, obviously does not have a child, but when she kind of is or thinks she is pregnant, there's this moment where she's still the queen regnant, but she's also fulfilling this role of the provider of heirs, which makes it more complicated for her. And I know you're both kind of looking forward again to new books and new chapters and and all of the exciting progress that we're making in this field. And so wondering where you see Marian studies and research on Mary the First going in the next, we'll say few years, not that too much pressure on it, but where do you see the field going from here? Joe, your, 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 your means of pivot here is, is pretty perfect. Um, because while this third volume that Valerie and I are working on co-editing together has been in the works for a long time, well, we're now at the point where we've received, you know, revised, um, revised chapters and, and we're working on drafting our introductions and getting this to press. When we conceived of it, we didn't realize that we would be writing about an accession moment in an accession moment. Um, and in much the same way as these current two volumes that are, that are already to press, um, demonstrate the centrality of representation and things like that. I think that everything that's taken place demonstrate how important that symbolism is, how important that that representation is, how important legitimacy and authority and all of the tools and mechanisms and theories behind those things are. Um, And so the impetus for the third volume here was a really a realization that in the two volumes that we had already seen to print and a whole other um, kind of uh, mass of scholarship Mary's accession moment was deemed important, but it was never zoomed in on, right? It hasn't been subjected to deep and focused study in the way that we really felt that it merited. Um, So this new volume comes out of a desire to highlight the moment of Mary coming to the throne and essentially the year or so that follows. Um, so it's it's focused on 1553 all the way through a little bit of 1554. Um, so largely um, privileging the period before she is married to Philip II, uh, the future Philip II at that point, um, Prince Philip. And so it's, it's privileging that era and highlighting how this kind of moment in which queenship is formed is an amazing, amazing opportunity for us to ex- explore the different dimensions of her reign, from things like politics to culture to gender and to religion. 
Then as we started working on this more and more, put out our call for papers, we realized that we could not exclude Lady Jane Grey, nor should we exclude Lady Jane Grey. Um, that the two of these are, these two women are very much linked to one another. And that it's interesting to see the way in which both of these women used the tools at their disposal, whether that be dress or patronage or art or music or other forms of propaganda or history to kind of bolster their authority amid the various threats that surrounded them. And that all of this lives on in posthumous representations, lives on in memory. And this is what, again, brings us into that really fruitful terrain of historical novels, historical fiction more broadly, of plays, of, um, of film and television to help us see how are Mary and Jane often set up against one another and how can focusing on this 1553 moment maybe bring Jane a little bit more deeply into the conversation because while there is great work on her, including recently um, uh, Nicola Tallis's book, right? But other than that and a few other things sort of around the edges, right? I think of Alison Cloud in here. I think of um, Eric Ives. There isn't a whole lot of sustained work even there, uh, kind of the vibrant historiography for Lady Jane Grey that there is for Mary. So this book seems to kind of speak to all of that and fill some of those, um, those gaps in the literature. Valerie, you've been working on a lot of accession literature for Mary. Kind of does that influence where obviously this volume is going uh, or where you see the field going? Is that the next big thing we need to tackle? I think that was certainly one of the big influences. So when I wrote my own essay for these, these two volumes on Mary's accession, the literature of Mary's accession, I mean, I had so much more than what I could have used for that essay. So we kind of, you know, kicked around like what else? I mean, there was a lot happening at the accession that we couldn't get to. We didn't want to include Jane Grey in these first two books. And what else was happening at the accession moment? And why was it important? Again, like not for reasons of gender and religion, but what else was happening on the ground in the moment that wasn't just she's a woman, now what? So that's what we're really tackling is, you know, we have two women who could come to the throne at the same time, who both had, you know, proper birth and influence and education and what happens and how do they wield their tools that they had and then how did those around them wield their own tools to advocate for one or the other in that first, you know, in the summer and fall of 1553 and then kind of the fallout you know, up to maybe Wyatt's Rebellion of 1554. But certainly my own work has been headed in um, literature for the early part of Mary's reign. So her accession right now, a series of essays on her pregnancy, but I'm not interested in, I'm not interested in her pregnancy, but I'm writing about her pregnancy. So I'm not interested in whether or not she was pregnant. I'm not interested in whether or not she miscarried, I have no desire to, what is it, diagnose someone, you know, 500 years ago, yeah. but how was her pregnancy treated in the sources? Because it is mm -hmm. so similar to how her accession was treated in the sources two years prior. So for me, that's where my own research on Mary is going, is what do we see um, in, in the literature around her pregnancy? Um, from books written to her to some really understudied manuscripts that were written for the birth of a prince whenever that was misannounced in May of 1555, uh, um, 
and kind of taking all of the literature around the pregnancy moment, similar to how I've, we've been treating, how Jess and I have been treating the accession moment, but what happens at the pregnancy moment and how is that written about? That's one of the interesting things as we're looking at it. And as I've started in a new teaching role of trying to, to get kind of 13, 14 year olds to understand about history is when we look at it from 2022, it might not make sense. But at the time, it made perfect sense. And so I think especially when we're looking back at Mary's pregnancies, as you say, it doesn't, in the long run, it doesn't matter what happened. It doesn't matter how it ended. It's that at the time, this is what's significant. And I think that's the the neat part about that and what really merits Obviously, you know, it's merits the the research is that the perception of the time is as significant as what happened kind of nine months later when there was not a child and that all of this power structure is in flux, regardless of whether she has the child or not, that that's a discussion that is happening just looking to add, right, I, I think that it's one of the most kind of fruitful lines of inquiry here is exactly the in-between of the process that you're describing, Joe, right? Like the contemporary moment and how we get to now. I don't think it's, um, it's not groundbreaking. It's certainly not groundbreaking to say we need to be paying attention to um, the process of myth-making. But I think this is something that's going to and should remain one of the most important strands of, of, of scholarly literature on Mary right now is kind of continued. And, and, and I think this is um, something that I'm really focused on, on a whole, uh, in a whole number of different projects, but it, it, albeit in different ways, is the pro- process of memory making and, and the existence of afterlives and how do we study and examine afterlives, whether or not that is Mary's afterlife or Lady Jane Grey's afterlife, how they come down to us now, or how it is that Mary creates afterlives and uses figures who came before her to legitimize her reign. And so one of the things that I've been, um, I've been, I've been working on a fair bit with Mary and also um, a few other Tudor monarchs is this idea of how are they using history? How are they manipulating the past in order to suit their own contemporary moment? It's something that Mary does. And then something that also happens to Mary after she dies. And that kind of continued process is really, really fascinating. And and I think it influences or can be examined in the context of text and literature um, and a reminder of what contemporaries were thinking as opposed to what we were thinking. And I think that's where Valerie's work fits in really well. But I also think it can be examined in the context of physical space. Um, and so one of the projects that Valerie and I are also collaborating on um, sometime in the in a little bit more distant future um, is this idea of a special issue for the Royal Studies Journal that's going to examine physical place and space in the context of the tutors, um, both the places and spaces that they occupied in their own time, but also the way in which physical spaces and places that they occupied have then either remained connected to them and to their legacies or um, been artificially divorced from, from, uh, from their past. And I think that's another, um, another fascinating uh, uh, mind to, uh, to dig into. To query. There seems to be so much that is happening in the field that wherever you turn, there is something new that is growing out of previous work. And that's what makes this field so rich and so engaging. And I know I can probably speak for many of the listeners, 
I'm very excited to see these works come and to see how kind of what, and I hesitate to say we, because I feel like I've done so little in this, but the work that has been done is field changing and is field inspiring at the same time. And I guess I will use that as the perfect thank you to both of the field changers here. Uh, thank you so much for joining on the podcast. Uh, it's been an incredible conversation uh, and I cannot recommend, I know I said this with Eilish's podcast, if you can get your hands on a copy of either of these edited collections, please do. They're wonderful. Uh, they make a great read. Uh, so thank you both for joining me and thank you to everyone for listening and for being part of the series on Mary the First. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.